up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united. We must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pours to back our lot of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. And it is indeed a very good morning, but we're not in Victoria. We're not even close to Victoria. We're actually in Perth. And while this uh, podcast is about the construction industry in Victoria, uh, we've decided to branch out because no industry, particularly the construction industry, is isolated to one place. And a lot of people, as you will learn over these uh, interviews in Perth, a lot of the people in Perth actually have a close relationship with Victoria, with Melbourne. Some uh, later in the week actually work for periods of time in Melbourne. But today we've got Graham Pallot. Pallot, but Pallot, if you we're talking French, yep. we are... Yep. We are talking at the time of the Tour de France, so it's only appropriate, Graham. So good morning, Graham. How are you? Good morning, Ralph. Welcome to be on the show. And I've got to say, it's uh, very nice here in Perth. The sun's shining. It's the middle of winter. The sun is shining. The skies are clear. And the streets are bloody empty. They're bloody deserted, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they must have heard I was coming. Right oh. We're talking about Graham's... Time in the industry, which is a fairly long time. And when did it actually start, Graham? Oh, gee. Um, when I was uh, 19 years old, um, to be quite honest, I was studying accountancy. Um, and I uh, got married. And the wages at the time were £56 a week in the office and $120, sorry, $56 a week in the office, $120 on a construction site. And I said, I'll have some of that. So I went out and started working in the construction industry. And once I started in the construction industry, um, I decided studying accountancy was not for me. Um, the only place I could ever be is outside. This is a qualitative change in your life. Absolutely. Best change ever too, I may say. Yes, indeed. And so when was that in terms of years? Which year was it, do you think that it came in? That would have in? been 1977 or 8. Yep. So... A fairly uh, interesting time in the industry anywhere in Australia, as I remember it. Yeah, well, it was an interesting time. Um, 
which I learnt fairly fairly rapidly after a period of time. <laughs> so when you started, who did who was your first job with? Uh, my first job was with bricklayers in the oh, bricklaying industry, in this the is housing a comp- industry, uh, working hard, trying to find work, um, in and out of work all the time. And um, eventually I thought, oh, I've got to find something a bit better than that. So I, I moved in and started working in um, commercial construction industry. Uh, well, not high-level commercial. It was built unit development um, for a company called Alfriston. So... You started off like so many people did working for Brickies. Hard way to learn the uh, builder's labourer's game, but it's a good one because it gives you a solid base, that's for sure. Yeah, it certainly um, sets you in good stead. You know, and once you've worked hard for um, the slave driving bricklaying industry, um, you're ready to do anything in the construction industry. And it seems easier. <laughs> it does. And back in those days, uh, people wouldn't see it these days, but the Brickies I worked for... Um, not only did you have to mix the mud, cart the bricks and everything, they uh, got you to lay plank sand in the sand so it was easy for them to walk backwards and forwards uh, rather than walking in soft sand all day. So we had to get all the planks laid down nicely and neatly and so they couldn't trip and they could walk in hard service all day. Well, one of the things I did notice from the air coming into uh, Perth is how much sand there is. There's heaps of sand in Perth. Oh. In, in Melbourne, particularly the northern suburbs of Melbourne, it's all clay. Yeah, not much clay over here. There's no clay over here. <laughs> a big wind in uh, Perth would disappear off the face of the earth, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, So you started in minor commercial work, and how did you progress through the industry? What skills did you pick up? What sort of employers did you work for? Because the history of working in the industry, whether it's Perth, Melbourne, Sydney or anywhere is pretty much the same, I suspect, and I think that's what I'm going to hear now. Yeah, look, uh, I um, principally worked uh, for builders. I was, I guess, fortunate in one way once I got away from the British labouring, so I was a builder's labourer. I was happy to be a builder's labourer. I did uh, study for a little bit to get a scaffolding ticket, um, but eventually, to be quite honest, I didn't go on and did that do that because I was actually a builder's labourer and I just stayed doing all the work that a builder's labourer does. About the only job I didn't like um, was the jackhammer and I tended to be given the jackhammer job for having too big a mouth and the <laughs> boss decided to penalise me by sticking me on the jackhammer. Uh, but one of the things I learnt early in the days, once I got sick of being on the jackhammer, I'd get up on top of the, the uh, column and I'd deliberately break the formwork out at the bottom on the side. And eventually the form workers would complain that I was shit at the job. <laughs> so I'd get taken off the jackhammer. Well, that is another success in your life, to get off that bloody jackhammer. Yeah. Because they were big, they were loud, and they were absolutely destructive. Yeah. And given to you as a job for a penalty more than yeah. anything else. <laughs> so sort of the builders that you worked for in, in Perth, uh, they were, I take it, it's probably still the case, were local builders. They weren't the uh, the big companies. Yeah, I never worked for any of the major uh, building companies except till well into the time I'd been working in the industry and uh, where Kevin Reynolds, the um, secretary of the Builders Labourers at that stage, uh, along with an organiser by the name of King Young, actually got me a job on the casino 
Birds Wood Casino when it started with Multiplex. That was my first first job with what was a major major builder. Well, Multiplex were a local builder in yeah, in, well, in those days. Yeah, most probably were. <laughs> yeah, they're bought out by a few uh, people along the way. I think they're still owned by a Canadian uh, pen- pension yeah. fund or equity firm yeah. or something. But like, it's it's a pretty common story. Yeah. But uh, some of the jobs you worked on in Perth, uh, it's, it looks like a successful city. It's uh, of a size which is you know you can cope with, especially when the traffic's so light. But did you work just in Perth or did you work around the outskirts of Perth and other places? You know, did you head up the coast or...? Yeah, look, never worked outside the Perth uh, metro area. Um, certainly did a lot of work through retirement villages uh, before I was actually working in the, in the city on multi-storey. Um, spent many a year working old age, old age retirement villages. Yeah. Well, not a bad place to retire, <laughs> as you found out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so in terms of Perth and the industry, what was it like going to work in those days? I mean, we've, the jackhammer's part of the gig, but yep. there was plenty of things that happened in the industry on sites. Do you reckon it was a good place to work, or a safe place to work, or... Did you, like so many others, find it uh, a little bit too rough and ready at times? And, um, that's, and that's why you opened your gob. Yeah, I think I think uh, safety was, I, gu- I guess it was reasonable, but certainly nowhere up to the standards it should be. And you know, back then, you know, people erected scaffolds even if they weren't scaffolders. You know, there was a whole range of things that were wrong. But I think the biggest issue that initially attracted myself into the union and becoming an activist. Well, there was two issues. The first one was around inclement weather and the second issue was when I actually got to the city and we started a fight for the 36-hour week. They were the two biggest... And I was the type of person that hates seeing my workmates getting screwed over. I'd, I'd speak up more for other people than anyone else. So, yeah, that's what got me actively involved. Um, inclement weather was... I guess the interesting one that started because me then boss used to say, well, you, know, you started in the construction industry. Surely you knew when you started in the construction industry you'd be working in the heat and the rain. And I used to say to him, well, no, I don't believe I should have to work in the heat or rain. Uh, there, there's got to be limits and there's got to be times that I don't have to get soaked all day or work in whatever the heat is. And he was very... Um, Domineering, so I contacted a then person called Bob Olson, and he came down and explained to me my rights that existed on heat and rain. And basically, um, from then on, we had a, quite a few years of battle over inclement weather. And he used to get really pissed off, and I used to just go around the job and send everyone home. <laughs> well, my observation is the uh, best clause in the award, other than the wages, was in fact the inclement weather clause, because you actually controlled the circumstances in which you worked and any worker who can exercise control out of, over how you work, I would have thought, is a happy worker. Oh, 100%, certainly um, in, in my years of being a, a rep on the job, I found inclement weather outside wages was one of the best things 
to actually get other workers on site. Um, it's quite often they were dominated by the pressure of their employer about speaking up and I used to have a chat to them about why they don't have to work in inclement weather, why it is a right, why just because they chose to work outside doesn't mean they have to work in crap weather conditions. And then basically I found that gave me a good relationship with workers on the job by policing the inclement weather. That, that got workers on side. And to be quite frank, nothing better than to uh, go home on a hot day um, rather than work in a... So in terms of climate change, yep. how hot was Perth when you started compared to now? Do you reckon it's actually changed? There's, Perth's a strange place. Where it seems to be a bit different every year, but, but there is no doubt it is definitely hotter now through the summer and more constant um, now with throughout, the, throughout the summer, yeah. And like everyone who listens to the cricket always hears about the Fremantle Doctor, is the, are the sea breezes actually providing that much relief or that, has that changed too? No, the sea breeze, look, I think, I think uh, all those things have changed to a degree, but there's no doubt uh, the Fremantle Doctor is, is a real, real um, issue uh, in regards to relief, and there was always a battle over here to try and get home before the uh, Fremantle doctor come in and knock the temperature down. Um, and and to be quite frank, once you had three or four hot days in a row, yeah. you were just looking forward to getting a break from working yeah. in that that heat. Yeah. You, 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 it, it caused uh, fatigue. You were getting tired. You weren't thinking about your job as well as you should. And it was really good just to be able to get out of it and go home. Not only did it help you from a health and safety viewpoint, mentally it gave you a bit of, yeah, beauty. I've got one back here. I've got what I deserved. I'm sick of working in the seat all day. So the Melbourne experience is the changeability. You're at 40 degrees one day, you could be at 15 the next. And in some afternoons it can drop 20 degrees in the space of an hour. But in Perth, I I would have thought it's it's sustained heat waves, is it? Yeah, that happens as a rarity. Um, sometimes it builds up and you all of a sudden get thunderstorms and all that, but in Perth you're more likely to get hot, 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 yeah. and ongoing hot, and you can get over um, the 37.5, you can get that four or five days in a row sometimes. And or just under. And that is debilitating in, any, yep. in anyone's experience. Yep. Now, in terms of the employer's attitude to inclement weather, were they... Making a uh, Custer's last stand of that, or was that just miserable bosses being miserable? When I first started, it was all um, a last stand. Um, it was all that attitude, well, you decide to work in the industry, you know it's hot, just get out there and work. Don't stop being soft, get out there and um, work away. Why they sat in their air-conditioned offices, of course. Um, Goes without saying, Obviously, the <laughs> construction worker knows, and the site supervisor couldn't see him for love or might all day but yeah that's the way it was and uh, um, that's why it was good to actually fight back and say no we're not copping this we're going on. So how long do you reckon the the campaign around inclement weather went in uh, in Perth? I know, I know in Melbourne there was a long period of time where the clause had to be enforced and it took some time to uh, basically get on top and one of the areas that under the award which you need to get on top of is the monthly limit the 32 hour limit and it's only when you broke 
that limit and you started getting paid for being legitimately rained off after you'd gone past 32 that the war was won. Is that the same in that, Perth? Or? That is correct, yeah. Um, I was reasonably fortunate, uh, even though a lot of my workmates um, used to have to have ongoing disputes about that. But the employer I worked for through those years actually didn't dare um, implement the, the cut-off of wages. They, they were, we were very fortunate and we took it up to them and they didn't actually implement it. But I know a lot of our work colleagues and workmates had a lot of problems and my usual biggest problem with stuff like that was trying to make sure the actual subbies on the job towed the line of the builder and uh, you know, used to catch them trying to transfer people and do all types of stuff that they they do and I guess they still do today now again but we used to deal with it. Yeah, well, bosses acting like bosses is the name of the game, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. That's why you have a union. But yep. anyway, but can I just digress slightly... In terms of Perth, that's your personal experience. What's your observation about inclement weather further north? Oh. How, 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 does, how has that played out in, in comparison to Perth? Yeah, the, the reality is up north, they've, they've always just kept working, um, even though I personally have great dislike of that fact. Up north, they've always managed it um, and they've always kept working and... Unfortunately, there's, we haven't ever really won the education battle with workers up north. Workers up north um, are so greedy for their overtime, the extra hours and all the rest of that. They discover well, that's part of the civil sector. We just keep working and we just slow right up. We don't work hard and we just keep going. And um, I, I don't know how they do it. Um, I've been up there a few times over the years. When, when I was an official, and you can go from the, the cool of what I call the lunchroom, which aren't that cool, and as soon as you walk out the door, it's like hitting a brick wall yeah. as the heat hits you in the face. You, you, it's, it's hard to explain until you experience it. I've got no idea, no matter how slow you go, mm. how you can actually be work in that, and I can't even understand how it's even deemed to be legal that you can have a procedure to allow that to occur. It's just totally unsafe. Is there a line somewhere along the coast where we go from civilised working to extreme conditions working? Is there a point, like Geraldton or somewhere, where suddenly the Perth attitude, the conditions that were won in Perth, suddenly start to peter out? Is there actually a line or is... There's not a, a line as as such, but generally the line has really been dealing with builders and contractors that we would normally deal with, where we can pull them into line throughout the Perth region, or the the cowboys that are out there working in the Esperances or the Geraldons or the, the Carnarvons that really are just little house builders building mm. the occasional commercial project. Um, using a lot of their local labour. When a major builder went up there, we were able to pull them up and stop them, and principally because of what could happen to them in Perth, more than mm. what could happen to them up in those regional areas. And what about going east, heading towards Kalgoorlie and places like that? How, yeah. how does the inclement weather and anything to do with conditions operate out there? Yeah, once you get into that civil mining sector, 
um, it's all pretty well disastrous. And even though there's been moments where it can get police to a higher level, generally it's not mm. good. Yeah. Now, you're a delegate for how many years, do you reckon? Oh, I was a delegate on the, the shop floor for about two to three years. Mm-hmm. And like usual, I guess there's a bit of a story on that to a degree. After um, Multiplex were coming towards the end of the casino, they uh, made an offer for for me to go peacefully and <laughs> get off the job as a shop steward because we actually had two shop stewards on, on the job. And... I remember saying to the area organiser at the time, Assistant Secretary, Mr Ron Kinney, I said, well, you can go tell them to stick their offer where it bloody hurts. Mm. Is There is no way I'm copping any extra money than other what I'm entitled to to leave this job. And I accept that it's got time to reduce from one delegate to two delegates. So I'm just going to go. And they're not going to get the satisfaction they're ever giving me any money to disappear because I love being a shop steward. I love knowing they want to get rid of me and I'm not letting that be lowered by any stand by picking up any money. I'm going. I'm out of here. That led to me spending about nine months out of work, Mm -hmm. um, effectively blacklisted for a while. And in actual fact, to be quite frank, social security system was pretty good back then in those days and I was getting the occasional night shift and money everywhere and eventually one day I said to my partner, "Mm, I think I'd better go back and get another full-time job because I'm getting used to this life, living on the (laughs) social security system. Uh, So I went back and um, I seen Kevin and I I got another job as a a delegate on extensions at the, the Royal Perth Hospital and that went for about nine months. Um, I finished that job and I was back at home and one day an official by the name of Kim Young come around to my house and said, oh, Kevin wants to know if you want to come in the office and do some wage books because we're behind on wage books in the office for a couple of weeks um, because, as I mentioned before, I'd been studying accounts. So, yeah, fine, I'll come in and do that. Well, that was really interesting because I think I sat in the office uh, for three days, and then all of a sudden, Mr Reynolds appeared at the door, and he said to me, I'm sick of you fucking bludgeoning in this fucking office. Get these fucking keys and get out the road and do something. Yeah, yeah. So off I went. And Deep end. Went. And then, you know, after that, I'd become a full-time official. Um, that's how I actually started as a union official, and best day of my life, actually. Yeah. So he didn't give you any training? He didn't... Uh get you a swimming certificate, uh, he just threw you in the deep end and you kept paddling. Yeah, the training was get out and start doing something. (laughs) What was your first blue? Oh, gee. Um, Come on, I'm pushing in now. Yeah, you are. You're really stretching back. Um, If I recall correctly, my first blue was on a job over in Clement Weather down in Swanbourne area where the workers were, were getting stood over to not go home and I rolled down there and um, it was an interesting day because the boss thought he had control and the reality is I had control because within 15 minutes everyone had packed up and gone home and they basically looked at the boss and said, uh, you might want to square up with us but we're not upsetting Graham and they just all went. Yep. And that was uh, 
particularly for the BLF, that was the power the BLF had in yeah. the state at that particular time. Yeah. So you're on safe ground with inclement weather? Yeah, oh, 100%. Yes. Nothing better than to get workers on side. Um, getting their inclement weather sorted out actually is more of a recruiting value than actually fixing their wages. Yeah. Wages is something you can through your delegates and your shop stewards, but to come down a job and get people knocked off for inclement weather, people don't forget that. Now, one of the other common issues that get raised... And there's been uh, any number of interviews on creatures of the industry where the interviewee has mentioned amenities. Yeah. And like we were talking to Pat Preston in an earlier uh, episode and he had a variation on sitting on bags of sand. Uh, he sat on bags of bolts because mm-hmm. he was a rigger, which would have been a whole lot more uncomfortable than sand. But never mind. Yeah. How did amenities play out as an issue in in Perth, and I'm trying to make a judgement about yep. how it would compare to Victoria. Yeah, when, when I started out as an official, the lunchrooms were reasonable and quite widespread on any reasonably sized job, and the award was very descriptive about them, about a certain value, and once you got to a value and numbers, they got them. And unless you went into the industrial estates, amenities was pretty easy to sort out. If they weren't there, they would get them there straight away and you'd mm. just turn everyone away um, mm. until they got them there. The toilets were the old... Um, thunderboxes. Thunderboxes, that's the word I'm looking yes. for. And it took, oh gee, I think five to eight years of campaigning to change those thunderboxes through the proper chemical toilets, through the proper sewer toilets, um, hooked up on the jobs. That took a lot. That took a lot of campaigning. So, which year did you become a full-time official? For nineteen eighty, roughly. Right. So, in terms of that period to get amenities and that sorted out, how long did that take you into the eighties? <laughs> uh, I think as far as industrial estates and all that, I was still fighting that and. Up to 88, 89, um, sometimes even later. Uh, the dispute over amenities wasn't always an ongoing problem for the, what I'd call the more major builders. Mm. Um, that was sorted, but never, to- everyone will say it was totally sorted, but it was never totally sorted. There was always ongoing disputes about the quality, the standard. There was always issues to have, be had over amenities and the mm. standard and how good they were and how clean they were and how often they got cleaned. It was always an ongoing battle. So to summarise, it ain't much different from anywhere else in Australia no. in the construction industry. No. it was always a battle. You can, if you can save a quid on a bloody clean dunny, you'll say, yep. who cares? Yep. You, you just go, no, 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 they can yep. be dirty and I'll save a whole lot more quids. But anyway, it's, it is what it is. But the... Other sorts of issues that you dealt with as an official, were they very much different from how you dealt with or the ones you dealt with as a, uh, as a delegate shop steward? No, the issues overall are, are the same, except everyone expects you to have the magic wand and have the answer <laughs> to every dispute that comes. And they expect you to be able to fix it without them actually having to do anything and participate. 
and sometimes the only way you can get something fixed is by active participation of the workers on the job. Yes, uh, and those people who are of a <coughs> employer persuasion listening, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and they suck up big time, yeah. but never mind. Now, are there any particular West Australian, even Perth issues that people in Victoria may not have quite experienced? Or is, is there something different about construction over here compared to, say, Melbourne? Because Melbourne's a fairly unique place, as you know, because yep. you've been there plenty of times. Yep. But is there anything unique in Perth that would be something that uh, maybe people need to know about? Because a lot of people have come to, over here to yep. work. I think the uniqueness in Perth has always been the size of projects in Perth and the amount of big projects versus small projects and the unofficial blacklisting that goes on behind the scenes and the ongoing problems of people not wanting to upset their bosses in, that, in, a, in a small town and not always having enough big projects for everyone to actually survive on. And then you get what I call the more minor problems that flow on from that with investments like our, our super fund don't occur in Perth compared to other states. So it's really hard to get the high-quality jobs and high-quality investors into Perth. They're all, they're all cowboys, usually. Mm. Well, just looking at the skyline, it's a pretty impressive skyline, but it's not that big. No. It goes up yep. and up and up and up, yep. but... It doesn't go out that far. And looking around sort of, you know, five to ten kilometres out from the CBD, I would have thought there is still a fair bit of that sort of three, four-storey apartment-type development, but it's not a crowded area out there, is it? No. Even along, even along the uh, beaches and that, it's, it's, it's no. certainly a bit different from uh, Melbourne and Sydney and so on. Yeah, it's only really in the last few years that high rise of any size has really gone outside the CBD and even then, like you're saying, there's still not a lot of it. Mm. Slowly but surely the new fad seems to be building apartment complexes at the local shopping centres and multi-storey car parks and all that type of stuff. So that's really only changed in the last five to, to well, um, apartment blocks has really only changing now. Multi-storey car parks much probably over the last five years. Um, up to then it was just big acreage, spread out, single storey, no two storey. So it, it, Perth is changing, but it's still a long way to go. Are the builders up to it? Uh, well, as I suspect, there's a whole lot of house builders that get sucked into the, uh, the vortex of commercial apartment type construction who leave disasters behind. Yeah, the reality is the, the builders are basically glorified house builders and even some of the uh, bigger companies that operate in Australia, when they come to Perth, they decide to adopt the housing structures. They don't show a lot of professionalism and it becomes an ongoing ongoing battle. They go feral, do they? Yep, 100%. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, the thing, you know, as soon as you haven't got your foot on their throat, they will go feral. Mm. Because even the issue of quality of building, uh, Four Corners and various other programs have had, you know, exposés of how bad some of the buildings are. Yep. And I can think of buildings even in my 
locality which is the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Places built less than seven years ago, the warranty period, are already covered in scaffold and leaking like sieves. Yep. Well, you know, the reality is they employ cowboys as a whole. They police it with a very casual attitude, just make it look good, she's fine, and, of course, then they're going to fart. Yeah. So in terms of your time with the union, you would have had some big blues over the journey, particularly given that there were some <laughs> fairly... Uh, what, yeah. we, what shall we say without being too uh, vindictive? Some pretty hopeless uh, Liberal state governments, um, some of whom... My, my understanding is we're more than happy to basically see uh, any Tom, Dick or Harry put up a building and uh, protect them with not just the local regulator yep. but also with the police and everything else. It was, uh, it was pretty full on over here for a long period of time. Yeah, I think, uh, to be quite honest, it was always full on. I think we may have been the original instigators of what... It was developed into the task force. We yeah. used to have a Zachnitz and Co. standing around bringing police, blocking gates. Uh, I forget what they called the first sign of a task force in this state, but that was well before it started any anywhere else. And unfortunately, I think that model, because they were basically just low-level um, office workers that did it, that model was eventually studied and learnt and glorified and slowly but surely they developed into the more modern task force with a lot more resources and a lot more powers and it's been a battle with those type of right wing laws for a long time and um, our friends in the ALP do not have a very good history of actually having much working class or real working class in them because Mm -hmm. when they get into power they change nothing, they do nothing, promise a lot but so when delivery was, is very low on. Yeah, so when was the first sort of task force introduced into Perth? Was it the, the court government or was it even earlier? Uh, Richard Court government, if I recall correctly. The first time I remember coming across the task force of any shape was at the Perth airport with a firm called Consolidated. They decided they didn't want to have RDOs out there because they'll be behind on time. And the next thing I know, we had the, these two people down there telling us we couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And, um, of course, we just shut the job down and that's where it went. So that would have been, what, mid to late 90s? Yeah, certainly wouldn't be any later than the mid-90s, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so... For those who are listening and uh, sort of want to try and put it in context, it took the uh, Royal Commission in the early 2000s before we had a task force for everyone else. Correct. So you were certainly under the pump. And am I correct in saying that for a long time you had two task forces we did. operating? We did, yeah, for a fair while. We had, we had two. And, you know, I, I got no doubt everyone knows um, the task force have no rules and they used to defend builders not to have amenities, defend builders to just treat people like shit, defend builders that we had no right to have a say on health and safety. And I think that was one of the other issues that we battled with in Perth too. We had to do it all on our own because even the Department of Safety, if I call it in a broad sense, 
would not come down and issue notice. They were instructed by the um, court government not to write notice, not to write improvement notice. You couldn't get anything out of them at all in regards to instructing a builder over anything to do with health and safety. You had to battle it out on the job. So has that uh, changed at all over the journey or...? It's, it's gone. They just, or they just talk more and do the bet, do bugger all. Pretty well, in my personal view, they've always just spoken and did did not a lot. It, there's no doubt it it has changed, but then of course, um, worst case scenario, and I assume it's all over Australia now. We went into these codes of practices, out of mm. proper fixed regulations that clearly state what's right and wrong and impose a fine. <laughs> And codes of practices, actually, people just drive trucks or I personally don't like them. I have no issue taking everything that's out of a code and putting it in a regulation and tying it to a fine. And so it's enforceable. And then that's the only way you get builders to listen. With proper enforceability, proper fines, proper penalties and um, make them pay because the only thing they listen to is what they perceive to be that nerve that goes from their brain to the wallet in the hip pocket, that's the only... And you've got to cut that, chop that, break that, squeeze that, and then they listen. Yep. Nothing changes, does it? No. (laughs) No. No. Now, in terms of health and safety, it's a pretty common experience what you're outlining across uh, the whole country. And in Victoria, it's even worse in one way in that the... uh, WorkSafe Authority is actually part of the WorkCover Authority. Yeah, right. And so the money that comes in for workers' compensation is very much tied to uh, the health and safety enforcement and uh, they would rather have voluntary uh, compliance because then they hope they're going to pay their uh, work cover f- subscriptions. Yeah, what a heap of crap. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah. It's an absolute disaster. But some of the blues that you've had over here, have they been unique or have they just been the usual sort of construction issues that go on and on and on and have gone on and on and on for so many decades? I think the only unique one wasn't principally run by us. It was like everyone else. The MUA Wharf dispute was the the uniquest one over here, which the CFMU actively participated in and helped Mm. out. And the use of police and forces and outside scabs and whatever there was like never to be seen before. And we always had uh, one builder over here, BGC, Glen Buckridge, that also operated at a high level of disputes. We've had many, many disputes, ongoing picket lines, full-on disputes, driving cars through embassies and all types of stuff. The bloke was absolutely mad. You know, I remember one time personally myself, I was on the job of his and he's driving around his Mercedes on a concrete slab trying to run me over. You know, he was just absolutely a fruitless. That he's no longer with us, is he? No. Oh. <laughs> no. Took long enough to go. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, he was just a, a, a maniac in regards to the way he would treat workers. Mm. And in the end, he even built uh, and bought out a whole heap of suppliers and everything to actually engage running trucks through picket lines and um, he, if the driver wouldn't drive through he'd jump in himself and just drive through straight through at 30 or 40 k's an hour and the coppers would just sit and watch. Mm. Now there was, a, my memory, there was a series of running disputes uh, at the airport but there was also, wasn't there a major dispute at the hospital? 
John Holland's oh. uh, built the hospital, yeah. and then uh, yep. guess what? Yep. Didn't do a very good job. Uh, it was actually a bigger health hazard than the, it, than it the was, vacant block when it started. It was always going to be. One thing that happens when they, um, particularly in this state, and I assume it's the same everywhere, but one thing about when they allow that type of pricing and regime to come in, they start using all the bottom line subbies who use bottom line shortcuts, have no respect for what collar to use or what's needed to be, just put a coat of paint over it make it look good. And, of course, um, at the end of the day, there's numerous problems and ongoing problems that exist with that hospital uh, because of the type of people they use. And even the good workers on the job can't fix everything when they're surrounded by a whole heap of bad workers. Yeah. But didn't it end up a health hazard in, in itself in yep. terms of... Yeah, there was issues with lead poisoning. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how they eventually resolved that. Uh, oh, I do know they spent heaps and heaps of money doing redoing the work. Did they pay for it or did the taxpayer? Yeah, the taxpayer would have paid for it, like always. Uh, you know, that's the one thing about governments, isn't it? Like mm. the, the Liberal governments uh, gladly pay for it and mm. the Labor governments just turn a blind eye and yeah. uh, sit back and do absolutely nothing about taxing the people they should be taxing. Yeah. Don't worry about taxing you a bit more as a worker. I'm interested in the hospital because John Hollands in particular uh, have done a lot of hospital work uh, around the country and every one of their jobs, and I'll stand correction as always, but every one of their jobs has uh, run over and every one of them has been a problem and the, the cost is unbelievable. And I'm thinking that the Perth job was in fact uh, a job which probably blew out by over 50% or something. Was it was it, was it that high? Well, I guess it depends how you measure it. I've got no doubt it was at least that high. How they actually measure it and actually publicise it um, can be two different things. But, again, um, it's amazing how these builders can allegedly be cheap, actually cost more than it would have cost to maybe build it half properly because the only real builder in Perth that could do it outside Hollands is most probably multiplex and um, they have their moments as well. But having said that, it just goes over, cost runs, cost runs, cost runs, pay, pay, pay. I know when I go buy something, mm. I pay for what I pay. The other big disputes uh, over the over the journey that I'm aware of, and they always seem health and safety gets mixed up with industrial matters and cost overruns and that by the major contractor. They all seem to meld in together. But uh, it was a, a rail job that was fairly notable. Yeah, um, I spent a lot of time walking up and down that rail job, in and out. But it's, it's the same underlying issue at the end of the day. They get uh, Salini and Co to do the job on a cheap price, so mm. then they got cheap subbies, shortcuts, mess, structures, negative attitude, get two workers in to vote up a bullshit agreement to apply the gump to the mm. job all the way through. Um, the project was always going to be a disaster in, in huge cost overruns. And, um, you know, that may have been formatted under a Liberal government, but it was certainly built under a Labor government. And again, the Labor government really did stuff all about, except pay more and more money and more and more money and more and more money. So, yep, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anyone, anyone says or portrays. Effectively, 
the only way you ever fix anything is by withdrawing your labour. Mm. And if you can't withdraw your, can't, not, can't the wrong word, if you don't withdraw your labour, you get the crumbs of a result. Mm. Um, or if you are known for withdrawing your labour, then your negotiating strength becomes effective. Um, without, with builders and the profits and to a degree the flow on the governments, at the end of the day, if it ain't going to cost them more, they'll go for the cheap alternative. And the underestimated thing that's in this argument is the, the um, finances. The people that finance these projects, um, I remember one day I was sitting in a meeting where there was a group of bankers and a whole heap of range of people, and the only question they wanted to know is the job going to stop. All they want to know is what the ability was for that job to stop and affect what they considered to be their finances. And I remember after the meeting, I was actually speaking to one person there that seemed to be, or say, half reasonable. And that lady said to me, you know what, Graham, at the end of the day, I argue with these people about having ethical standards and all types of things, but she said the only thing they're worried about is their money, their profit on the money, and if you aren't going to stop that job they'll decide to give it to whoever they can to save a few dollars. Mm. And that's why we always must be looking at withdrawing our labour when it's required. Now, I've got, I've got a bone to pick with you mm. and with the West Australian branch. Uh, having had a less than enjoyable experience with Salimi, you exported them to uh, Victoria. Yeah. Is, are you going to claim responsibility for that? or Because oh. we've now got... <laughs> Yeah. One of the biggest infrastructure jobs possible. It just shows you, doesn't it? You know, governments are all persuasions everywhere. Mm. Um, will go for cheap and nasty, even though they were well and truly aware of what they're buying and who they're buying. And um, I'm just trying to remember the name of them, but the company that Salini formed their partnership with in Perth was one of the worst possible builders out of the civil sector out of here. So yeah. you've got... The big finances from overseas with one of the worst building companies you could possibly find and their practices stand for nothing but paperwork, paperwork, paperwork of which none of it's enforced or implemented. Mm. So that's been a, a fairly constant theme over your time with the big infrastructure projects because I'm thinking back uh, even longer ago to Leighton's and uh, couple of the jobs they did yep. before they were wrapped up and sold off to uh, a Spanish uh, equity fund or whatever yep. they are. Yeah. Uh, infrastructure projects have always been a big issue in Perth. Um, the projects have usually um, been negotiated with one of our comrade unions in the state and always tried to lock out the BLF principally um, and then on to the CFMU and stop them from having influence. So it has always been a battle to get on any major infrastructure, rail, roadwork projects. It's always been um, a battle for as long as I can remember. Well, it's a battle everywhere, I think, and uh, it ain't going to change, but you've got to keep up the fight. Uh, absolutely, because at the end of the day, the workers on the job, uh, just workers like you and I, they, they really want to get the best money they want to have health and safety. We've just got to educate them that they need to stand up and do that. And that's why the system spends so much time of implying fines and penalties because at the end of the day, they know what's going on out there is simply wrong, it's not right and should be fixed. And 
what I don't understand in it is you can't keep attracting people to work in an industry to have high quality standards if you don't pay them proper money to do so. They'll look for alternative work. And they talk about the problem in attracting apprentices to the industry. Well, no wonder they've got a goddamn problem because if you're not going to get paid properly and the wages aren't going to deliver outcomes and people aren't going to get leave, what parent is going to say to their kid, go be a carpenter, go be a bricklayer, go study this? They all push their kids to do anything other than mm. enter into apprenticeship these days. Well, uh, recent uh, conversation I had with a young bloke uh, who lives quite near me as an apprentice carpenter, what he couldn't understand is... I can do the work now. I'm a second-year apprentice. I can do the work now. And there's these blokes who aren't even tradesmen who are getting paid more money than me, and uh, they're doing side deals as well. And why would I finish my time? And it's a bit hard to argue. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely definitely a problem, and that's and that's why that system needs to be looked at. People need to be paid properly. People need to be able to have a proper standard of living and um, just means training. Why should someone earn considerably less money when they're actually learning the skills and need to get there? And instead of workers on the job, because I think workers themselves get sucked into a lot of this thing, instead of worrying about what your workmate gets paid compared to you, if you're not happy with your get, what you're getting paid, get off your ass and do something about it. Stop mm. voting up bullshit agreements. Wait to the stuff you commit to is to a standard, because guess what? If you don't sign a crap agreement, guess what? They're going to pay you, what you're earning now anyway. So why sign on to a crap agreement mm. and agree to something you don't actually agree to? Mm. Just stop signing. This leads me off on another little digression. <laughs> the award. Yes. Now, the award, in my view, is basically being not destroyed, because that means there's nothing, but it has been so discounted as to be of very little value other than being a bit of a, uh, a blueprint for how you do an agreement. But now the experience with the enterprise bargaining system puts that uh, very much at question. Even in Victoria, where I think we've been very successful, the number of people in the construction industry across Victoria, across Australia, who are covered by agreements is even less than it was 20 years ago. And the award is a fraction of what it used to be, and so there's been a general suppression of standards. Is that the experience in in Western Australia? I mean, there were always separate clauses for Western Australia, but it just seems to me that there's been a general loss of uh, wages and conditions over that period. Yeah, biggest con job ever of bringing in enterprise agreements to reflect what is really the award but loses all the power of what awards have and all they're designed to do is create employers that can stand over workers where they can find workers or get labour from overseas, which hasn't been the problem it has been, to downgrade the award and effectively, over time, the award is becoming ineffective because it's so far away from market value, Mm. it means nothing. And I got no doubt at all if the awards kept up with market value, we'd all be a mile better off and it would also be harder for the cheapskates to actually skate around proper written awards that were enforceable. Another issue which seems to me obvious in Melbourne 
but what's it like here is the maintenance of trade skills. I mean, I just think the tradesman was, whether as a builder's library argued with them or not, and yep. I can remember the days when uh, tradesmen often wore a tie under their overalls and they were Mr. This and Mr. That and uh, they somewhat overblown view of themselves, but they actually had skills mm-hmm. and they were crucial to the process. Um, but that's disappeared. It's the discounting of skills in uh, the building industry in Victoria is shocking. What's, what's it like in West Australia? Oh, the pitch is the same, if, if not worse. There, there's no doubt. This whole The reason there's so much problems in building and construction and the quality is because they've destroyed the system of effective apprenticeships, avoiding trainerships, traineeships to give it another title to undermine apprenticeships. It's all created a downward trend to allow the lowest standard to apply, not the highest standard. And um, it will not get fixed properly until the system actually decides they don't want to see people dying. I'd hate to know what would happen in Perth if we ever had an earthquake with some of the building practices that go on in Perth. Just to sort of uh, agree with you quite happily, it's one of my expectations. The first decent uh, tremor in uh, Melbourne is going to lead to a lot of water leaks. Yep. It's going to be pretty bloody bad. But anyway, the apprentice system here is... How is that controlled these days compared to what used to be the case? My view is they don't control it now. Um, the employers dominate with no proper policing um, bit like you said before most people get out of their apprenticeships earlier in the case because they want to go earn a bit more money and all these things are, are encouraged by default because the employers just say if you're doing your apprenticeship this is what we have to pay you and they actually encourage people to get out and go off and break down their apprenticeships and they don't want to teach someone if someone's learning to be a carpenter they don't want to teach them all the uh, skills of being a carpenter. If they're a roof carpenter, they just want to teach them the roof and teach them nothing else because they don't want to pay to teach them to be a tradesman across the board. There's no swapping between contractors for occasionally so people would go off and get experiences in different areas of their trade. So it has to fail. The current system cannot keep going. And one day it'll only get fixed once governments actually accept that and actually put in place proper, strong laws to make sure training has to occur properly. Now, given that the the northwest is a place where you can go make a quid, is that making it worse uh, with retaining apprentices in West Australia? Or is that one of the reasons why it's so easy to lose people? Or? Yeah, the northwest has always tend to do that because it comes under a, a different set of laws. So what they basically do is um, take people from all types of skills in the industry and allocate them up north by traditionally paying them more. That was the case until about oh, until the last quiet downturn about four or five years ago and then people just went up there to get a job. It is certainly swinging around again now because of the amount of work on mm. and it's starting to come back that the wages and conditions uh, are getting quite reasonable up in that, that area. But they are one of the driving forces up north of wanting to break down into, I'll say, traineeships. So if they want one skill, they just want to teach someone that one skill. But they want for that project at that time, 
there's no responsibility of educating a construction worker now for the benefit of the industry to teach them the range of skills that they are required to actually be that that tradesperson. All they want is a specialist in what they're doing at the time. Which can be subbed out. Yep. That's the whole idea. And, and you know what, if you sit out of work, so be it. You just sit there, you go be a... Well, I don't want to be insulting to other people, so I won't say where they can go. You go work elsewhere until we want that skill, and then when we want that skill, we'll attract you back by paying a little bit better than what you can earn elsewhere. Yeah. Well, in Victoria, we've um, had legislation passed which is going to lead to the licensing of trades. I mean, I haven't seen too much of a result so far, but the legislation has been passed and the hope is that apprentices will go through, get their trade papers and get a licence. Now, the people who are presently performing work as so-called tradesmen are going to have to prove uh, their prior learning, as it's called, or their actual ability to do the job, as I would say it. Has that been discussed in West Australia? Uh, I've been retired for a couple of years now, but, yeah, all those things have always been signalled to be on the agenda and something that needs to be achieved and being viewed as maybe a solution to the problem. I think they can be, but my concern is if they don't go along with proper enforcement by governments, um, because governments aren't going to bring in laws to make the private industry do it. But what governments certainly can do is make sure anywhere there's government money spent, that standard must apply and make sure it's enforced. And then that would then fix the problem, because government is one of the most major spenders of Mm. construction money, whether it be every field. Uh, So the real key at the end of the day is uh, governments actually having a will, not only to make those changes and bring in licences, but actually make sure that that is a standard that applies on their projects. Well, I'd observe that in Victoria at the moment, I mean, the public infrastructure sector is the biggest area of work. We've had a building boom that's gone on now for probably 15 years or more, which has a lot of private money in it, but now the the big money is in uh, infrastructure. It is an opportunity that sounds like what we're experiencing, the issues that we're facing are pretty common and they seem to exist exactly the same way in uh, West Australia. But when it comes to governments, they come and they go. The union has gone on regardless. Yep. But would you like to just reflect on the pain and punishment that has been suffered on the way through just surviving? How do you reckon the unions come out of the end of this uh, last 20 years or so? We've now got a federal Labor government. You've got a, a Labor government in West Australia. There's been a lot of things promised, a lot of things said, but how, how do you reckon organised Labor has actually ended up in Western Australia compared to when you first came into the industry? Yeah, look, to be quite frank, my personal view is it's got a long way to go. Until we solve some of the problems for workers, principally hiring and firing and victimisation, a whole heap of things like that, workers always wanted to, to a degree, hide and be led by the stronger workers on the job. They wanted someone to blame. 
Uh, the biggest undermining that I believe has occurred in effective system is the ability to hire and fire at will and just sack people and no effective resolution uh, because the reality is someone being um, sacked and at the end of the day disappearing and most probably not pursuing compensation but if they did getting very minimal compensation just totally undermines what's going to happen and and all these alleged issues about trying to stop workers going on strike and organising workers effectively is there's so many restricting factors that have come in and I don't envisage in seeing a real fix-up to our industries until workers can get back and have what I call a proper voice. You are listening to Creatures of the Industry on Community Radio 3CR. So... Let's be blunt, where is the union now in terms of its role of protecting and promoting the interests of construction workers? Are we on our knees? Are we fighting back? Are we, I don't think, but are we possibly on the cusp of having a a new and more positive uh, period in front of us? In a a West Australian context? Look, uh, there there are some areas that I believe there is a positive period for. Certainly, there's no doubt the younger members in the industry are definitely becoming more more active and more involved and are looking for for ways forward to go to the, the future. But at the end of the day, we're still fighting all these fights with our hands tied behind our back. And... I'm not sure where I see the solution. Until we get back to the day of parking a car in front of a concrete truck or um, a whole range of other things, I'm not sure. There's certainly nothing in the current system that allows workers to be able to fight fairly. There's nothing in the current system uh, that allows workers to stand up and have an active voice. The thing I've noticed is the what I call the stronger people have just said stuff this and they now just work in the housing industry for themselves because they don't want the frustration of working on a, in the bigger areas where they get told what to do and can't do. So a lot of those people and those personalities, mm. uh, the personalities that would drive you mad as a union official have been driven out of the industry. Mm. The people that have big mouths, big voices, domineering personalities, they just don't employ them on the big shops anymore. Mm. And... I personally don't see how you can ever fix our industry because they're the personalities. No matter how much a pain they ask, no matter how much they nag you, how much they call you down, how much they demand you to fix a problem, they're the personalities that actually fix the industry. It's not the quiet supporter that stands in the background that can fix that. That quiet supporter needs those strong, active people on the job. And yes... They'll go behind them when they can stand behind them and go to a rally. They'll tend up in front because they know what's good for them. It's money in their pocket. Mm. But once you remove those stronger personalities from a job, you, you have a big issue. And we've got a long way to go in this state, and I assume in other states as well, about being able to get those stronger personalities back on the jobs, leading the way, and, and people would say, oh, people were in fear of them. Bullshit, they were in fear of them. They just wanted to stand behind them and they wanted to blame them for going on strike because it was mm. easier to say to their boss, oh, shit, well, imagine what Fred's going to do to me if I scab. Mm. 
It was never about scabbing. It was never about that. It was never about the freedom to work. They just wanted to have an easy argument with their boss about why they weren't at work. And I'm still not convinced until we develop ways that what I call the Mr and Mrs Average on the project can hide but be strong supporters by going to the rally mm. um, till they can say to their employer, well, shit, if I don't go on strike and if I don't go on that rally, I'm going to get blacklisted off the next big job in town, which is all bullshit, but it created the excuse mm. for them to say to their boss, I'm going to that rally. We've mm. got to work out a way to bring back effective ways for the people that are called Mr and Mrs Average out there to have an answer as to why they're actually standing up for their rights. And we can all say they should stand up and do it, but where has that really got us? I think to a degree we've tried that in Western Australia for a long time. We've said to them, you've got to stand up, you've got to have a say, you've got to at least go along with your work weights. And all it means is they give in to the power of hiring fire and the power of their boss in an industry where labour turns over quickly. I can't see a real effective way out of this until we actually get a way to answer that problem of how we actually protect those workers and get their voice back on side. But the people who are standing at the front uh, hope that the people are going to be standing behind them. When they turn around, they're not there. Destroys their uh, fortitude. Yep, and, and that's what this whole new system has been designed to undermine. And like I say, a lot of those people now are out working in the housing industry because they said, fuck you, I can't be bothered looking after these people or fighting this fight or getting victimised and then getting four months of good work and then getting six months of shit. I'll just go out and make my own life and my own way in other areas of the industry. We need to attract those people back. And, of course, the big red herring and all that's always been, oh, they're all bikies, Mm. big red herring. Oh, yeah, just another excuse to try and attack and belittle mm. people standing up for this. I don't give a shit if they're a biker or not a biker. I couldn't care less. When they're on a construction site, they're a construction worker. Mm. And if they're standing up, they have a voice, they're my friend. Yeah. Now, as we uh, progress in this interview, which has gone for some time, are there things that you would reflect on now, and I think I can suspect a few of them, but are there things you would reflect on now as being positive progress items for the industry and maybe some that have either not gone anywhere or have become uh, actually a a disadvantage. Over the passage of time, we've had the introduction of superannuation. In Victoria, we've got uh, our redundancy scheme. There's all sorts of things that have been done and part of the agreements. Are there things that you reckon have worked really well, some have not worked or some have actually been detrimental in a West Australian context? Yeah, look, I think overall superannuations work really well. Not that it's actually delivered many building projects in Western Australia because of where we are and the size and the capacity, but I think super's done very well. Um, My only concern with that is one way it becomes a default um, old age pension, but at the end of the day, I think overall um, people get better standard of living out of that, so I think that's worked well. I think effectively a redundancy scheme should work exceptionally well because I don't think it works perfectly as yet. But let's face it, if I'm out of work, I need money to survive and get through. So it's a way of actually giving construction workers a standard of living until they can find some work again. And I'm surprised that so many employers 
are actually anti a strong effective redundancy scheme because you would think rather than wanting to lose their workers to the mining industry or wherever they may go, you'd think they'd gladly be paying into a redundancy fund to get that worker to hang around for two or three weeks, uh, refresh their time because, let's face it, in the construction industry you always struggle to get annual leave, have a bit of time, a bit of family time and get back and wait for that next job coming up. So I'm not sure they've worked as effectively as they should, but they are essential schemes that are effective to any good uh, construction worker wage package. And the idea of cashing them out into hourly rates is an absolute disgrace. It just strikes me in what you're saying that there, and what you've said earlier, there's a little bit of a difference in attitude between Victoria and Western Australia. I mean, just get the impression from what you're saying that there is a, basically, who gives a stuff attitude to whether someone stays in the industry or not. Whereas Victoria, there is a much more of a commitment to the redundancy scheme, uh, which is called Incalink, and uh, it's actually something that bosses want. They want an agreement which includes Incalink, but they want Incalink without the agreement. Yeah. But they actually want to keep people in the system more so than uh, it sounds like here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the employers over here don't want redundancy scheme. They'd get rid of it tomorrow if they absolutely could. They like to have their, their fingers in the pie and sit on a couple of boards and shit like that, but they really are not supportive of the scheme because if they were supportive of the scheme, why would they use subbies on the job that aren't committed to the scheme? They're false supporters. In actual fact, they're false supporters of whether it be super, long service leave or redundancy in this state. All they want is subcontract, cheap, hire and fire. They have no commitment to the industry at all. Even allegedly good companies like Multiplex, their commitment standards in this state and the people they're run by in this state, uh, you know, their IR officer would be one of the worst people I ever come across doing IR in the northwest. One of the most right-wing IR people I've ever met in my life is currently the main IR advisor in this state. The leopard doesn't change its spots. Um, he is there to deliver an undermining agenda, mm. and that's the, the best builder in the state. Mm. So there's not a lot of commitment in this state. To the, mm. to the industry. It's all about making quick money and quick profit. I'm not saying there aren't builders like that and, and the master builders and the rest of it aren't like that in Victoria, but there seems to be a bit more of a uh, broader approach yeah, in well, Victoria. Well, because of the amount of work in... Yeah, I'm not that I'm trying to make excuses for the state in Western Australia, but the reality is because of the amount of uh, quality work, quality projects in yeah. Western Australia, they are still much probably the best builder here by a country mile. Mm. So it, it is a real problem with the amount of investment and the size of the building and the construction in this in this state to get it up um, to, to higher quality, considering, um, as you mentioned a few times through this, we generally have right-wing governments that actually endorsing, implementing the undermining tactics, making in everything ineffective, issuing government projects to the cheapest crap person Possible. The only time they really look at delivering projects to uh, more quality builders is the hospitals, and even then they give them to people like Hollands. It was an absolute disaster. Oh, and before that, obviously, uh, BGC was the big one they encouraged to, to develop 
to lower the standards of government projects in the state. Has this also led to the parallel problem of what now is called in the media casualisation, but I mean building workers have always been daily hire, which is really was casual work. Yep. Very few people in the industry are on weekly hire, but now we've got in Victoria a whole lot more people who are on hourly hire and even under the EBAs they're guaranteed a day's work, but there's so many non-EBA labour hire people out there which is really, you know, creates two problems. One, no one's assured of continuing work. And two, there are some people who work two days here, one day there, three days there, two days there over a a month, and they think it's terrific because they're getting 25% loading on their hourly rate. Is that the same here? Or is it even worse? I think it's even worse. I think those problems have been coming in this state for a very, very long time, the casualisation, the undermining of permanent money, undermining of conditions by just paying someone a bit more and people grabbing that money to survive without thinking about where the future takes them, um, tightening up of social security, kicking people off, forcing them to do whatever job they have to to create effective undermining. The, the whole system has moved to endorse the race to the bottom. Mm. There's so many things you could change to actually improve the system and I think that's what happened without us realising. They put so many pieces in that jigsaw puzzle puzzle that allowed the undermining of the system. It wasn't just, even though they portrayed it was, it wasn't just about withdrawal of labour. That was about trying to convince the public that we're bad and we shouldn't have a right because when you go... In my family, I've got a lot of office workers. And when you go to office workers and say you're going on strike, oh, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. But when you talk to them about the industry, you tell them the facts of what's really occurring. They say, well, you should be able to withdraw your labour. You should be able to do something like that. You shouldn't get treated in that way. There's been a persuasive education battle that's occurred to attack and be little. And in the first instance, I used to have with my family, I'd say, well, you had more than me. I used to say to them, well, go on strike, do something about it. And we got people go, oh, well, no, you should just get paid less. We've educated people to think that their class should be up here mm-hmm. and you should get less. You shouldn't get more. You shouldn't be able to fight for it. You shouldn't be able to strive for it. Whereas when it was effective, it should actually work the other way. Obviously, if I get paid more and get paid more, that increases the bargaining power of every worker Mm. to say to their employer, well, I'm going to go out and do this on the construction industry if you don't pay me that. They've been educated by default to look at it the way around. They've been educated to attack and belittle construction workers in their Mm. industry rather than say, we need a strong construction industry setting the wages and conditions Mm. to flow on to everyone else. Well... It's a, uh, a positive line, Graham. that uh, I thought uh, Mr Albanese was uh, going to take up with a little bit more enthusiasm, but unfortunately with the recent cost of living increase in the basic wage, the flow-on seemed to be different between those who are actually on the bottom and those who, because of skill increments, were a little bit higher up and they had to wait even longer. Just, yeah. It's a contagious problem across all aspects of uh, the political scene. Yeah, I was hoping Albanese would stand for something different, but I suspect 
unfortunately, is going to be like typical Labor government leaders. He's going to come in, he'll get one term, then he'll get thrown out because they forget where they come from instead of actually moving and looking after workers and strengthening workers and looking after the people he should be looking after, he'll decide that he has to side with big business, look after big business because of all the reasons they can't afford it and can't do whatever, can't do this and can't do that. At the moment, you know, look at our unemployment. It's not too bad, but what they'll do, they'll open the floodgates. And why? To bring in cheap labour so employers can rip everyone off again. Mm. Why are we going to do that? How about we actually do the things? How about we change it? How about we actually... And then, you know what? They might actually get two or three terms. They might actually stay in power mm. instead of getting thrown out, instead of wanting to be in a de facto Liberal Party as soon as they get in mm. and say because of all these issues. Let's face it, they got the power at the worst possible time with the biggest debt and now they're already falling into blaming all that what the Liberal Party election they didn't want to win, the election they gave to the Labor Party to stand up and get thrown out after one term. Well, maybe they should sit down and have a proper think tank, actually discuss properly with the, the union movement a way forward and a way to look after workers and actually have the people that they're allegedly got a voice for, allegedly want to fix after and actually get one. Yeah. Well, in terms of immigration, um, Australia's always been a country where migrants come. My family came here in the 1850s and, in fact, both sides of my family came here in the 1850s and from the potential French background of your own name, it it's, it's, again sounds like an immigration story, but they came to stay. That's it. The guest worker thing was something which everyone used to poo-poo uh, in relation to America, you know, getting a green card to go there and work. Europe, you know, just you went and did the shit jobs in Europe and uh, various European people wouldn't do. And that came to Australia and I really reckon that the uh, aged care sector is an absolute classic. Yep. And the conditions, the wages, all the rest of it, you can't attract people. And as soon as the... Uh, COVID came in and people had to go home and all, or couldn't turn up for work and all the rest of it, suddenly, oh dear, we've suddenly recognised how things have changed. And heaps of people come to Melbourne. Perth, I always thought there was a, except perhaps in the northwest, it was a fairly settled, permanent immigration sort of uh, city. Is that right or is it...? The, the construction industry has always been, particularly over the last few years, full of uh, what I'll call, loosely call backpackers. Certainly there is no problem in what I call proper immigration, where people are coming out here and to make this country their new home mm. and actually be part of the community. That's what you need to be your overall basis. And that doesn't mean you can't have any backpackers, but the backpackers are principally used to be cheap labour services, sources and undermine. Uh, just like, dare I digress, there is a unforeseen problem that has occurred in this state, and I'm not sure where it currently is, where they actually use the prison systems and people getting out of prison systems and all that to be de facto cheap labour as well. And a range of various people on Social Security pressured to be de facto cheap labour as well because mm. we're going to cut your doll off if you don't go work for nothing. So when you add all them together, there's a huge effort put into undermining, whereas what we actually need 
is for, and this is what our expectation should be, I would have thought of a Labor government, for them to actually stand up and make sure their preference is for properly paid workers to deliver quality products, quality projects and quality outcomes and good skills, properly trained, not just trained in one isolated skill because that's what the boss needs at the moment. If I need a skill, I should have to train that worker in all the skills they need to get employment. They're coming there to give me what I want. There has to be something in the process where the worker gets what they want, which is proper training in their trade. And belittling, chopping it, breaking it up is not respecting the worker. It's about getting back and respecting worker and their rights. And then we'll find this country will turn around and go the other way. Yeah. Well, there was an argument recently uh, with a few employers in Victoria about paying uh, the apprenticeship levy under the redundancy scheme. Every employer pays to make sure that the industry is employing apprentices and keeps them in the system and keeps them in the industry so that the work can actually get done properly. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't employ apprentices. Why do I have to pay? The short-sightedness of so many people is beyond me. Well, you know, surely, and I hear the statement, I don't employ apprentices. Well, they're double the problem then. Because not only aren't they paying, they aren't training. So they're actually double the problem. I would have thought apprenticeship levy should apply in every state, but I would also say I think they should be done like they are in in Melbourne, where there is the ability for the organisations that represent the workers to make sure that that money is spent properly, trained properly, and make sure that disadvantaged kids also get a chance to be able to get a start. Construction people have a chance to make sure that their sons and daughters can get a start. So really, to be quite frank, that should be compulsory, but Mm. my only concern is I don't want it to be controlled by the bosses. It has Mm. to have control. In actual fact, I think it should be controlled more by the union than the bosses, to be quite frank, because they will always abuse it. So in Perth, is the apprenticeship problem, the whole issue of keeping people in the system, learning skills and putting back into the system, does that apply across other trades? I mean, I'm not really well aware of other trades. I know a bit about Perth and the building industry, but in the metal trades and some of those other trades, is it a similar problem? Yeah, from what I've seen over the years, it's it's the same everywhere. Um, The only time anyone gets, I guess, a bit of a leg up is when there's a bit of a boom going on in a particular area and then all of a sudden the employers want to put people in to do that. But the overall problem still is then they only train them in that one aspect and and so that doesn't deliver any outcomes to the industry as a whole because once that bit... That, if that's the bit that's booming at the moment, the, per, the worker needs to get skills for the next stage of the boom and the next stage of the boom or where the work's going to keep them in the industry. So we have a, it creates a constant problem, whereas, I know I keep saying, but the workers' values and needs in the training system are ignored. Mm. It's all about giving the boss what they want, not giving the worker what they need. And, of course, industries do shut and there's going to be in West Australia a... A few mines getting shut. Yep. Collie's uh, the area I understand. Yep. And then that leads to a whole series of other issues about uh, what's going to happen to those people, what's going to happen to those communities. Now, mines have always closed. You can go back to the tin mines in Cornwall bloody centuries ago and 
when the ore ran out, the mine closed. Yep. And people move on and people have to do what they have to do. Is there a plan in place for people in the mining sector? Because mining is still, believe it or not, part of the CFMEU. That's the E. Um, mining and energy still in it. Uh, what's going to happen to those uh, sort of areas? I mean, I would have thought even servicing uh, the mines and the distribution of product and all the rest of it is still going to have an effect on building workers because a lot of that stuff uh, needs to be the backup to the industry is done by members and people in the industry. Yeah, um, most of that's occurred since I've retired, so I don't have any current knowledge Mm. about what's happening there as such. I I am aware before I retired there was ongoing discussions about that. But again, with those types of issues, until governments actually get involved with money, support and genuine attempt. While you're negotiating with the people who are about to shut, you're not going to get the best of outcomes. Even a good outcome is not going to be as good good as it should be. Um, There are some things that the governments have actually got to take ownership over and rather than try and say everyone else should go do it, it should go over there, they've actually got to step up. And, of course, one of the problems we've got in this state, generally it's always been right-wing governments, so... Mm you don't get what I call effective outcomes in, in those areas. And it's one of the reasons I believe we've got so much problems in our industry now. But in terms of, just to persevere with the, the issue, Collie is a fair way away from Perth. Yep. I wouldn't have thought there was a lot of work down Collie Way. No. How, how are those communities going to get affected, do you think? Oh, I wouldn't have thought that. There's nothing else down there? Not really. Not to replace something like that, but there's anything else it's down there is is already there. There is a couple of new big mines opening, but they're not labour intensive. So I would have thought that that is going to destroy the town of Collie myself. Mm. In actual fact, Collie has already had a huge impact over the last 10 to 15 years. It's nowhere near the area it was. Uh, a lot of those people do end up by working fly-in, fly-out. So I'm sure at the moment, since over here, generally up north, there's a lot of work on at the moment, the effect is most probably at the lower end. But Mm. at the point when it goes quiet next, it'll be a huge problem for the Collie region and the Collie people. Well, just on that, the fly-in, fly-out has been a matter of some interest in the media in more recent times. But at Melbourne Airport, here they are in their... uh, high visibility uh, clothing and hopping on a plane flying to Western Australia from Melbourne. Is it even worse in uh, Western Australia in terms of movement within the state? Uh, I mean, a lot of people fly to Queensland, a lot of people fly to northern uh, New South Wales as well as West Australia from Melbourne. And I know people in Bendigo who fly from Melbourne to uh, North Queensland. But is there a, a internally within the state, what's the fly-in, fly-out like? Uh, is it big or is it, it, it is. constant? It's, it's the same everywhere now, I think. Fly-in, fly-out has slowly been churned into a weapon of really just lowering standards, wages and conditions because what you do is you open up your market across the whole of the country and you pay someone better than what they may have been doing in a previous job, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right wages and conditions that should apply to that sector. And 
people from all walks of life come into the fly-in, fly-out sector. And it's more, my view is that the fly-in, fly-out push is more about trying to de-empower workers and they'll gladly pay the cost of it. Well, half the time the workers are paying for flights themselves except when it's booming. You know, that's how bad it was at one stage because it's so unregulated. Um, I'm sure at the moment, since it's up there, they're all getting paid again at the moment. But, you know, originally in workers in that area would have got paid from the time they left their home all the way to the job and all the way back. Mm. Fly in, fly out spread because they attacked payments in those areas. Mm. And a whole heap of people go, oh, well, it's better than the job I've currently got. And they, they step into an area. I'm very non-supportive of fly in, fly out while people are given preference. I, I strongly, and I know a lot of people over east and elsewhere won't like that, but I believe preference should be given to workers within any state first mm, yeah. before and fly and fly out. Or there has to be proper enforcement of people flying and flying out being actually treated properly. And for me, if someone's flying fly out, their flight should be fully reimbursed and their flight time all the way should be paid because the worker should have to pay a premium. I mean, the boss should have to pay a premium to get a worker in fly and fly out because there's only one thing they listen to, like I said earlier, is that nerve that goes from their brain to their hip pocket. And if it doesn't get pinched, mm. they'll cheapskate it. And what they'll actually say to the worker in a strange way, oh, well, I've got to pay for all this, so I can't afford to pay you that, or I can't mm. afford to do this. Or if you get to my front gate, I'll give you a job, but if you're not at my front gate, I won't. Oh, yeah, the gate start. Mm. Every state in Australia, the gate start. But where I'm leading is fly-in, fly-out is also associated with construction. And I can remember back in the 1970s when Cape Lambert, I think it was, was one of the jobs that was on the go. And uh, come and work in Western Australia, et cetera, et cetera. The fly-in, fly-out really bit hard in the construction area. Is there much construction going on in the northwest these days or is it basically just mining and servicing and or is there still projects ongoing? Especially given climate change, I would have thought there would have been a fair few people thinking uh, at the big end of town, well, maybe uh, this isn't for me. Maybe I need to diversify. I noticed Twiggy Forest is uh, <coughs> trying to get his green credentials in place and yep. uh, all the rest of it, but... It has been, you tell me if I'm wrong, a huge part of the construction sector in West Australia, especially the North West. There's fly-in, fly-out, huge projects, and I would have thought a very difficult area to organise, let alone maintain that organisation. Oh, it's a very hard area to organise. Um, the distance is, one, I guess, one of the, the biggest killers. You, know, mm. you, you can drive 12 hours just to get to a job. Um, you can't always be able to fly in, fly out as a union official, and there's a whole heap of restrictions. So it's a, it's a hard area to organise, the fly in, fly out um, area. And a lot of fear exists in the fly in, fly out by workers working in those areas. But there's always generally plenty of work in that sector. Every now and again you have major downturns but where where the world is at the moment there is plenty of work through those sectors and at the moment the pay rates are not too bad in that area because market forces have forced them to be bad. Mm. But It's a pretty sad story though where 
the system allows market forces to dominate what pe- whether people get paid reasonably because I personally believe the wages they're earning are only fair and reasonable for that area. Mm. And we're much probably at one of the higher points in, in what I'd call the market at the moment. I don't accept that construction people, workers that are principally wage earners, should be subject to market forces. That's why we're supposed to have awards, and that mm. goes back to an earlier subject you brought up earlier. The awards have fallen too far behind what is realistic market forces, and the recent pandemic has highlighted in in other industries. Um, people are getting fatigued; they're not getting paid enough, and uh, the reality is having a trouble in attracting people into certain jobs because the money's just not there. Now, also with the remoteness and fly in, fly out, um, the social problems that come with that development over the last several decades has that been you know remarkable or is it too much drinking drugs all the rest of the stuff that goes on is that pretty much been constant or has there been a lot more problems from that sector in in perth i mean i'm not expecting you to know about every town in western australia but in perth is is the consequences coming home or Oh, look, I think the consequences are coming home to the extent that um, certainly people are accepting more and more there's a lot of problems and issues to deal with that. But getting the answer to those problems being dealt with tends to be a lot more difficult because once you get into fly-in, fly-out, you know, you've got problems of accommodation, you've got problems of um, mental health, you've got problems of a whole range of things that people don't even understand how it's going to affect their life to switch from being home, nine-to-five job, to working fly in, fly out, working rosters, impact on families, impact on children. There's so much that comes out of that, and no-one in the system is taking any real ownership of the bigger problem behind the scenes is mental health Mm. versus the mining companies subbing everything out and taking no responsibility for the mental health of the, the workers on their jobs mm. and just subcontracting it out. So when it goes wrong, they just flick that subby and blame them and say, well, we're, we're a good employer. But it doesn't. It, it, there, there's a need for a major think tank about how that works. And is that having a knock-on effect in the workplace on construction sites in Perth or is it sort of happening separately? I think it happens separately overall. Yeah. Um, you tend to find a lot of the workers either work in that area or that area to, to a large degree. Yeah. And if at the moment I think they're, they're two different, they're two different yeah. beasts really. Yeah. But where they become more of one beast, when the amount of work starts drying up and everyone's trying to get in the same pot, then it starts yeah. becoming intertwined and very messy. Well, we have a few programs in Victoria, like the Blue Hats program, which is actually an industry program with WorkSafe, however much we do criticise them. It's been a program aimed at assisting construction workers with mental health issues, particularly with suicides, and it's been a a really good development. And it's a a collective thing, so you're not alone. And, I mean, I've got to say... I am extremely critical of a whole lot of people in the industry, but on this one, it was just the problem was just too stark. It was in your face, yep. and the industry has done something about it and, and continuing to improve in that area, and hopefully uh, might get exported around the other states. Yeah.
any improvement would be welcome in those areas. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a very under-resourced and under-recognised problem. You know, I've been retired for three years now and I still have three people that are not that well in mm. this area that I occasionally still get phone calls from yeah. um, that can never totally answer their problems and they're not sure where to go for help. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've been talking for a fair old time and I was just wondering if you, as we get to the end of the conversation, are there any highlights that you would really put the chest out, pull the shoulders back and go, I was part of that and I'm really, I'm really happy I did? Oh, well, I think there's a few things. I was fortunate, even those arguments for and against. I was certainly involved in the campaign to get superannuation introduced into workers. And I think the other one that I liked the most was the campaign for the 36-hour week. I'm not sure it's so strongly around the state these days, but the 36-hour week was an important victory. They were essential improvements. You can always look at the lesser lights, like or any industry scheme, Mm. whether it be long service, uh, redundancy or superannuation, has to be a good win for workers because it takes it away from the employer pressure. It's been undermined by casualisation, as we spoke mm. about, mm. and that, that is a, a problem. But that, they're the biggest victories. They're the ones that I'd always remember. And strangely enough, the involvement in the wharf dispute was certainly... A proud moment in this state, even though we're all in the one unit now, but that was a proud moment in this state, our help and involvement of helping the MUA as much as we possibly could in the wharf dispute. That's full of memories as well. So to summarise, the journey uh, came to an end, as you say, three years ago, but it wasn't a bad trip along the way. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I still miss it. I enjoyed my retirement and I've accepted retirement but I still miss actively talking to workers, understanding their problems, and it just doesn't die. You still want to go out and help workers. It just doesn't disappear. You're getting paid to have fun. Yep. (laughs) Best job ever. That's it indeed. Well, we've been talking to Graham Pallot. I'm going to use the French pronunciation because there's nothing wrong with... uh, Expressing your roots. Absolutely. And uh, you've been listening to Creatures of the Industry. And as I said earlier, I'm over here in Western Australia and we're going to do quite a few interviews. And while it's not quite the uh, portfolio that uh, Creatures of the Industry was supposed to be about, that is Victoria and regional uh, places in Victoria, it's a common experience and it's not a bad idea just to have a look at what other people have experienced. And so thank you very much, Graham. Thank you. And thank you very much to everybody who helped set this up. And we've got, a, a fair, as I say, a fair few to go this week. And uh, they'll all be appearing on the new Creatures of the Industry webpage, right back to Series 1, Series 2, Series 3, as we're doing now. And hopefully there'll be a lot more series before it's uh, all over and done with when I retire from this. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 
And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains, and break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. Got a fighting 